0: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Robin Wright is the diplomatic correspondent for The Washington Post. In just the last few weeks, her analysis have covered such subjects as Lebanon, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, and Syria. She has reported from more than 140 countries for The Washington Post, The L.A. Times, The Sunday Times, as well as such weeklies and monthlies, The Atlantic and The New Yorker. And I can on- honestly say, Robin, often when I see your byline in The Atlantic or The New Yorker, I do stop and I buy the magazine. So uh, you really o- have a, a large following. Um, named Journalist of the Year by the American Academy of Diplomacy, she's also received the UN Correspondents Association Gold Medal for coverage of international affairs, including such issues of Latin America, Asia, etc. She's held fellow positions at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Yale University, Stanford, and Duke. Dreams and Shadows is her most recent book, but it's also her fifth. The Last Revolution, Turmoil and Transformation in Iran was selected in year 2000 as one of the 25 most memorable books. And then her book, Sacred Rage, The Wrath of Militant Islam, was written in 1985. Let me repeat, it was written in 1985. Her new book, Dreams and Shadows, is one that I hope that you will pick up. It is a book that deserves to be read. And I think one of the things that I always like to do, as you know, is see what other people have said about the book and what a diverse opinion. I was calling some of our Arab friends as well as Jewish friends and said they really needed to come and, and be a part of tonight's presentation. And reading these comments, it underscored why I said that, Mustafa. Um, Senator Joseph Biden said, A compelling account of a turbulent region whose future is inescapably bound to our own. Anyone who wants to understand the seismic forces at work would be well advised to read Dreams and Shadows. Rami Khouri, syndicated columnist for Beirut's Daily Star, says, Very rarely is our world so faithfully captured. A correspondence with the Israeli Daily Heretz, Aluf Ben, said, This book is a necessary reference to anyone interested in understanding the Middle East undercurrents, and it taught me quite a lot about our neighborhood. Robin and I had coffee this morning, and I think one of the most interesting things he said was, I don't write for the pundits in Washington, I write for the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Wright.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, A woman normally does not admit to these things, but I just want, for the record, all of you to know that I was Robin Wright first.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: I am, first of all, very grateful to Dallas. I lived in Beirut for five years at the height of the Civil War and during the Israeli invasion. Uh, And the thing that so many of the correspondents and the people who lived in Beirut were grateful for was... Ceasefire. Because uh, every Thursday night when Dallas showed on Lebanese television, (laughs) even the gunmen watched, and so we had our Dallas ceasefire. There were a lot of us who wish it ran kind of every day, every hour. Uh, I wrote this book because after covering the region for so long, uh, it became clear to me that the United States didn't understand what we were getting into in Iraq. We relied on a group of exiles led by a man named Ahmed Chalabi who had not lived in Iraq since 1958. And he'd left as a teenager. And we relied on him to be our guide into what was happening inside Iraq. So I decided that I wanted to go back to the region and and travel from Morocco, in North Africa, across to Iran, on the Persian Gulf, to all 22 Muslim countries in Israel to get a sense of what really is happening inside the Middle East. Now, I first landed in the region on October 6, 1973, which was the day the Fourth Middle East War broke out. Um, I've covered all six wars in the region since then, as well as several of the revolutions and uprisings to the point that my father once said to me I was so unlucky in landing in places where wars immediately broke out that he was never going to go to Bermuda on vacation because <laughs> he went with me because he was sure there'd be a coup d'etat. <laughs> now, when I landed in the Middle East, the price of oil was $3 and 12 cents a barrel. Oh, aren't we nostalgic? Don't we wish that it was $12.12 a gallon these days? I have seen so much of the turmoil in the region since that day. Uh, I lived in Beirut, as I mentioned, uh, at the height of the Lebanese Civil War. I stood in front of the U.S. Embassy hours after it was blown up in the very first terrorist attack by a Muslim extremist and watched as rescuers picked through tons of mangled concrete and steel, looking for little bits of human body to put in small blue plastic bags, hoping that the pieces could eventually be matched up together. Many of the people who died that day were friends of mine. I also lived in Beirut over the next 18 months, as we saw a second embassy blown up by extremists, and then the marine compound, which to this day is the largest loss of U.S. military life in a single incident since Iwo Jima in World War II. It was the largest non-nuclear explosion on Earth since World War II. Those three terrorism spectaculars marked a real turning point in the Middle East. Out of my own anguish, I set out to find out who was responsible and why, People were targeting my nation and my friends. And I went to places like Iran at the height of its revolution and kept going back and back to these places where Islamic extremism was being born, uh, all the way through to Afghanistan during the Taliban. And as Jim mentioned, I wrote one of the very first books on uh, Islamic extremism. And I remember that one of the early reviewers in 1985 said, it's an interesting trend, but it's really peaked. Uh, Oh, to be vindicated, unfortunately. Its explosive potential is clearly going to define American foreign policy for a long time to come. (laughs) Clearly, we have not seen uh, the end of al-Qaeda, even as we claim to have made success against it in Iraq. We may not even have seen the worst terrorist attack on our interests in the region, and perhaps even not even in the United States. That's the problem we all face. But at the same time, when I went back to the region, I came away with a very striking impression that something else is also happening in the Middle East, that there is, for the first time, some sense of promise. There is a budding culture of change emerging that is imaginatively challenging the status quo of the autocratic regimes as well as the extremists. Now, I need to tell you that I am the ultimate pessimist. I'm not the one who says, is the glass half full or or is the glass half empty? I'm the one who says, is there really any water in the glass at all? So when I came away from a year of going back to the region with... A sense of there actually is a beginning of change, and i can 't stress enough a beginning. I surprised myself more than anything else uh, i found new public voices and daring publications and noisy protests that were redefining the political Dynamics, the political horizon. It came in a lot of very different forms, from defiant judges in Cairo, from rebel clerics in Iran challenging the world's only modern theocracy, from satellite television owners in uh, the Gulf, from daring businessmen in Damascus, from very imaginative feminists in Morocco and the first female candidates for public office in Kuwait, Uh, Daring journalists in Beirut and Casablanca and young techies in Saudi Arabia. For all of them, peaceful empowerment has become the preferred means of making political decisions and producing change. Now, the tiny minority that are willing to go out and kill have had so much impact in the past, in part because there weren't alternatives. There were so few new ideas and activists in the region. But I think over the last decade, and particularly in the aftermath of 9-11, we've begun to see impatience and frustration in the region fueled by education, uh, aided by the tools of modern technology, the miracles of instant media, as well as the demographics of the young beginning to change the political dynamics when I went to the region for much of those 35 years, I would look first for the Mujahideen, the holy warriors, the people using bombs and violence as the barometer of uh, opposition. What I found in going back to the region was that I was increasingly meeting up with what I call the the, the, the Pajama Hadeen, the young people who, from the comfort of their homes, are using their computers to try to bring about change rather than using bullets and bombs on battlefields. Um, I tried to write this book in terms of characters, defining the people who are the new activists. And one of my favorite characters is a young blogger from Egypt named Wael Abbas. Now, Wael started a blog in 2004, and he became very interested in human rights, managed to get his hands on a cell phone video of two Egyptian policemen beating up a young detainee and sodomizing him with the end of a broomstick. He managed to put this cell phone video on his blog. It ended up on YouTube. And it forced, because of the international and domestic outcry, the Egyptian government to prosecute the two policemen one man with a modern tool circumventing state control of print, radio, and television providing real new information mobilizing opposition and holding the government accountable one man and what's interesting is that his blog today gets 30 to 45,000 hits every single day and it's one of over a thousand blogs in Egypt Again, a beginning. When you consider the millions in Egypt, that's a fraction. But the mere fact that he's out there doing something and having such an impact is one of the reasons for hope. I think the issue in the Middle East today is no longer whether to engage in political change. The issue really is how do you get there? And I think even the conservative Gulf shakedoms have had to respond, sometimes in an attempt really to preempt change, But even in countries like Saudi Arabia, you've seen the first election for local councils. Um, Now, in typical fashion, they set up a system where you can elect, uh, the local elections are for men only, and they elect only two-thirds of the seats, one-third are appointed. And of course, to effect any change, you need two-thirds plus one. But they have accepted the idea of an election. In nearby Kuwait, they've gone one step further, and over the last two years, given women not only the right to vote, but the right to run for office. I think what makes this era different are the activists now trying to hold governments to account. They are no longer limited to the intellectual elite, and the numbers engaged, especially when you compare them to the small cells of suicide bombers, are really quite striking, During the years I lived in Lebanon from 1980 to 1985, violence was the basic means of political expression about virtually everything, and I mean everything. I went to see a movie once, and instead of applauding at the end, three men got up and fired their guns into the air as the rest of us dove under our seats. ...to fire into the air uh, after a wedding. Uh, if you got stuck in a traffic jam, people would stick their hand out the window and fire into the air. What was so striking in going back to the region was the way in which, after the assassination of Rafi Kariri, a quarter of Lebanon's population turned out on the streets of Beirut to demand peaceful change to demand the resignation of the government, to demand the withdrawal of Syrian troops, to do what the United Nations, the United States, the major powers of the world had been unable to do. After six weeks of protest, the Syrians agreed to withdraw, and the government resigned. Now, Lebanon has gone through a lot of ups and downs since then, but what's so striking even about the recent violence is the fact that at the end of the day, all sides got together to prevent the renewal of a civil war. Uh, and there, it's not unique. It's, one sees this in a lot of different forms in the Middle East today. The, after the uh, three hotels were bombed in Amman, 100,000 Jordanians marched on the streets of Amman shouting against al-Qaeda, burn in hell. These were not the old rent crowds One saw in the old days. Uh, More than 2,000 Muslim intellectuals signed a petition calling on the United Nations to sponsor a new treaty that outlaws the use of religion as a mechanism to mobilize uh, political opposition or to incite violence. They proposed that the UN form an international tribunal to try what they called the theologians of terror and the sheikhs of death, who provide cover for terrorism. The president of Senegal two months ago, uh, in front of the 57 members of the International, uh, or the Islamic Conference Organization, said that the era of jihad must end, that Muslims must not allow the extremists to drag the Islamic world into a war with the West. The king of Saudi Arabia again two months ago, called not just for a dialogue that we've heard a lot about between Islam and the West, but a dialogue between Christians and Muslims and Jews. That's a very important thing. Now, when I went to the region, um, uh, one of the things I looked for were the agents of change. Because a friend had said to me, the problem with the Middle East is that there are no Lechvalenses, There are no Nelson Mandelas. And so I went in search of them. And I want to tell you about a few of the characters that I found because I think they illustrate in a human way what's happening in the region. One of my favorite characters is the Nelson Mandela of Syria. This is a man named Riyadh Turk who has protested the rule of the Assad family and gone to jail over and over and over again. And Riyadh, the third time he was picked up, was held in a room the size of an elevator shaft. No window, no bed, no furniture, no toilet. He was never charged, never tried, never knew how long he was going to be held. He had no paper, no pencil, no book, no access to a lawyer, no ability to communicate with his wife and two daughters. He kept his sanity by taking the uncooked kernels of rice from his soup at night and using them to draw geometric designs on the floor of his cell. And he did that every day for 18 years. And he was 68 when he came out. And what did he do? He turned around and started protesting again. And what happened? He went back to jail. I saw him when he came out of his fourth stint, a few weeks afterwards, and he's now in his mid-70s, almost legally blind, has a terrible heart problem, and what's he doing? He's speaking out against the Assad regime. So often we look at what's happening in the region in terms of our own strategic interests, and that's fair enough, but we often don't look at what's happening inside so many of these countries. In Syria, we look at it because of its meddling in Lebanon, its facilitation of foreign fighters into Iraq. It's playing the role of spoiler in the Arab-Israeli conflict. But what's actually happening inside Syria is really captivating. Another of my favorite characters is a woman, an Egyptian, named Gada Shabendur. Now, Gada had never been engaged in politics before, never voted, never belonged to a party. She was a typical soccer mom. Four active teenagers in the middle of a divorce had decided to go back to college so that she could get a teacher certificate and have an independent source of income. And one day she happened to see, on one of the new satellite televisions that provides alternative sources of information, pictures of Egyptian women being beaten up by a group of unofficially sanctioned thugs as a row of And she was so angry about this that she mobilized a group of her friends, and they formed something called We're Watching You. And the you, of course, is the Egyptian government. And they tried to decide what they could do. And the first, uh, their elections were coming up, first for for the presidency and then for parliament. So they decided they'd set up a group that could monitor the elections, because the Egyptian government was, out, uh, was forbidding international observers. Never having voted before, they had to go to lawyers to figure out what constituted fraud. They had to go to constitutional experts to get a sense of um, what to look for. They set up a website, sent around phone numbers. This is where you should call if you see anything that um, you think is suspicious. Uh, They borrowed a little office of a friend who had an advertising agency, not sure that they'd get any kind of response at all. And on the day of the the presidential election, they had over at the end of the day a thousand detailed documented cases of election fraud. First time in Egyptian history. Western embassies started calling them to get a sense of what was really happening. International human rights groups started calling to get documentation. Western journalists to get comments of what's going on. With the presidential election or parliamentary elections a few months down the road, they then decided to hire a cameraman to capture what happens. The Egyptian trick is the government buses in its supporters early in the morning to vote, and then it deploys its police and these unofficially sanctioned thugs to hassle voters, people who have to go to work, it slows the voting process, discourages people from staying there all day, who have to take care of families. And they went to several of the government, or the opposition strongholds. The very first one they went to, sure enough, the buses came in, lots of people voted, they left. They left. Other voters started coming in, and the thugs started slowing it down. No one could get into the school to vote. Some of the voters went out and got a ladder to climb over the fence. And as they started up the ladder, the police opened fire, first with tear gas and then with rubber bullets. And Gada and her cameraman got it all on film. But they decided not to stop there. We are watching you, then sued the Egyptian government, For violating the terms of an international treaty on corruption, it had signed and failed to oblige. They started a a program for 13- and 14-year-olds, an essay competition on constitutions. Kids wrote essays on four constitutions. The winners got a two-week trip to the United States where they spent a week working with a school in Massachusetts. Their counterparts, 13- and 14-year-olds, where they studied the rule of law. Uh, then the kids went to Philadelphia to look at where America's constitution was written and signed, and then came to Washington. This is a group of very middle-class people who ro- who, rose all, who, who mobilized all the funds themselves, started the program by themselves, saw it through to the end, and now GADA is invited to monitor, help monitor elections in other Arab countries. And this has all happened in the last three years. Um, A couple of the other characters that I I found so fascinating. Uh, One is a, a, a woman in Morocco named Fatima Mernisi who grew up in a harem in my lifetime. Not the kind of harem of literature and lore, but a harem of the extended family, three generations living together. All the women, grandmothers, mother, aunties, siblings, and cousins were illiterate. There was a full-time person paid a man at the door, front door, just to make sure that the women never left and no outsiders ever got in to see them. They entertained each other by giving little plays on the second and third floors. Well, the radio was locked up, and the women couldn't even listen to it. When the father left, he hid the key. Fatima, at the age of seven, was a very curious little girl, And she decided she wanted to listen to the radio. And she watched where her father hid the key. And she went and opened the cabinet and listened to news of the outside world. And she became very interested. And she decided she wanted to go to school. And so she got her mother to convince her father to hold a family council, male only, of course, to debate whether the first girl in the family could go to school. They finally agreed. She went to elementary school all the way through high school. She ended up at the Sorbonne, and she got her doctorate at Brandeis. And she has subsequently written a series of books about all the traditions, the fatwa, the edicts, over the centuries that have limited women's rights not from the time the faith was founded, but all the things that have been added since then. She wrote a classic book called The Veil and the Male Elite. And today she's the Arab world's leading feminist. Um, another of my famous, my favorite characters, just to show how much diversity there is in, Iran, in, in the Middle East, is a cleric in Iran named Hadi Khamenei. Now, Hadi has taken on... The opposition to the idea of a supreme leader. Iran's slightly bizarre political system has traditional elected offices, but there's a parallel um, for every the, for the president. There's the supreme leader who has ultimate veto power. For the uh, parliament, you have the guardian, uh, council of guardians. All these religious groups that can supersede the traditional with a supreme leader able to overturn judicial decisions, veto candidates, overrule presidential decrees, uh, veto legislation. So Hadi has argued in seminaries and universities and public fora that there should be no one above the rule of law, that everyone, including the supreme leader, must be elected in popular votes, uh, that everyone, no one should be above the law. He's been beaten up and hospitalized for his injuries. He wrote op-ed editorials only to see those newspapers banned. Uh, He tried to run for public office and was ruled insufficiently Islamic, even though he was a cleric. What makes him so interesting is that his older brother is Iran's supreme leader. So there is enormous array of diversity. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that there is eternal hope and and uh, across the board in the region. The title of my book is Dreams and Shadows. I went not only to see the new activists. I went to see the head of Hezbollah in Beirut and the head of Hamas in Syria. There is a lot to worry about in the future of the region. There are many forces that are holding back change. There are many overcast days ahead. And there are also some principles to worry about. Um, democracy is about differences. And they are bound to flourish once systems open up. And d- disparate sides of society are really free for the first time to speak and act. In a region rife with minorities, opening up political systems also endangers deepening the very problems it's meant to solve. And opening up political space doesn't guarantee who will fill it, which is what we've seen happen with Hamas in the Palestinian Authority. Uh, I think the period ahead is will witness an uneven contest between what I call the three crats, the Democrats, the autocrats, and the theocrats. The Democrats have the least experience, the most limited resources and the biggest struggle ahead. The autocrats hold the national treasury, they have no intention of sharing power, and they control the security forces who can harass and limit the activists. And the theocrats believe they have a mission from God and a flock of the faithful to tap into. It's going to be an uneven battle from the start. And nothing is going to happen quickly either. It's I'm talking um, even those in the region who talk about change, talk about it in phases, in uh, years, uh, in, in decades, uh, it will often look more like participatory despotism than participatory democracy. And there's also a danger that all the factors contributing to change uh, will make the region susceptible to greater turmoil in the short term. The stimulants of change actually pose some, sta- some hazards. One of the major engines of change in the region is youth, for example. The Middle East has witnessed a sevenfold explosion of population over the last three generations, from 60 million people in the 1930s to 415 million today. The majority of those people in some cases, 70% are below the age of 30, and all of them are interested in, even hungry for, change. yet as governments are increasingly unable to provide education and housing and jobs, there's a real danger that this group of young people, one out of three who is unemployed, the largest youth unemployment rate in the world, will be susceptible to the appeal of extremists. Now, I really want to open it up uh, to your question, so I'll conclude with one final um, brief thought, and that is that um, I think the Middle East, over uh, for the rest of my professional lifetime, will unquestionably continue to be the world's uh, preeminent challenge and cause for anxiety. It will threaten our security and uh, often drain our resources far beyond ways we are willing to spend. Not always by choice, this will be the part of the world where our foreign policy makers will have to devote the most attention. And yet, even as the war in Iraq drags on, even as it makes many people in the region nervous about democracy because of what because Iraq has is now no more able to provide electricity or jobs today than it was at the end of Saddam Hussein's rule. The majority of people in the Middle East really do want the kind of change that has swept the rest of the world, with the demise of democ- with the demise of communism in Eastern Europe and military dictatorships in Latin America and. Uh, the end of apartheid in Africa. After my travels, I concluded that what is most inspiring about the region is not what dreams we have for the people of that region, but instead what in aspirations and goals they really have for themselves and are willing in ways that always surprise me with their bravery, willing the actions they're willing to take themselves to achieve it. I thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Is it true that in Egypt there was a singer named Yusuf who was an activist, and is she still going on?
1: A singer named Yusuf? Yusuf. Yusuf is a man's name, and it actually means Joseph in Arabic. But
0: that's her last
1: name. Yusuf. S S E F. I know how to spell it. I don't. I don't know this sure singer. That. Okay. No, that's all right. No,
2: I just hope that there are more like that.
1: <laughs> well, there are. You know, an extraordinary array. And as I said, I'm always uh, amazed at where we find people in, in unusual
0: ways. I, I have one as, as well. One of the things we've been reading about is how. The United States has been, except in the case of Iraq, somewhat moved out of some of the discussions like what's happened with Israel and Syria. Could you comment on the role that the United States is playing in some other areas?
1: Uh, I actually did a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago about how just days after President Bush got back from the Middle East, the Middle East was really moving on beyond the Bush administration. It was very striking that on the same day you have the Israelis and the Syrians acknowledging that they're engaged in, Talks indirectly through the, through Turkey, and then you have Qatar overseeing talks uh, between the factions in Lebanon to make, to to end the standoff there. Um, Egypt is playing the role in trying to broker between Hamas and Fatah, and I think that one of the problems is you're dealing with a lame duck administration uh, that doesn't have the clout it did earlier. Uh, but you're also I think faced with the um, Uh, the sense that there is not a lot of momentum, that there's a kind of sense of lethargy. No one I know in Washington is very optimistic that the current U.S. effort to uh, broker peace between Israel and the Palestinians is going to be fruitful by the end of this administration. I think the best we can hope for is for for a process to be put in place that the next administration can inherit rather than have to start from what usually happens with a new administration.
0: Robin, a um, couple
2: of things about Iran. Uh, you write a fascinating background about how Khomeini actually came to power, the, the things that happened in writing that constitution. Give us some sense of that. And then secondly, I know you interviewed the current president
0: uh, and you have some very strong opinions about him personally and where he's coming from. So I'd be interested in that both in Iran.
1: Let me address the second first on the question of President um, Ahmadinejad. I've seen him twice, When he's uh, both times in New York when he came to speak at the United Nations. I've interviewed a lot of uh, characters, should I say, in my lifetime, Idi Amin, Muammar Gaddafi, etc. You put them all on a scale, one side of the scale, and you put Ahmadinejad on the other, and uh, Ahmadinejad is by himself far scarier to me. Uh, it's hard to, to find the right kind of adjective to tell you that he's chilling or that he's you know, difficult or narrow-minded, but I'll tell you an anecdote that helps, helps understand. Uh, one of the times I saw him, I was one of 30 members of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, who had dinner with him, and we all deferred the first question to Maurice Greenberg, who is a noted American industrialist, and whose family uh he lost several members of his family in the Holocaust, and he survived it. And Maurice said, you know, to Amaninajad, How can you deny the most well documented case of genocide in human history? And Amaninijad turned to him and said, How old are you? And Maurice said, eighty one. And Amaninjad turned to him and said, Ah, you're alive, as if you see your proof that the Holocaust didn't happen. It was, you know, how do you describe that? How do you find the right adjective? So uh, my concern is that Ahmadinejad, during his first term in power, has brought many of his ilk into the system in a way that makes the kind of reform movement we saw from 1997 to 2005, very difficult to function. But I also think for the first time, and I it's, there won't be a, a new election, uh, another election until uh, June next year, I'm beginning to think that he may not get reelected. Uh, he's facing such difficulties at home because he has mismanaged the economy. You know, it really is. It's the economy, stupid, and uh, and he may fa- face the wrath of uh, Iranian voters. Much of what happens at that election may be determined, ironically, by what we do, because there is a sense that um, every that Iranians, Persian nationalism. Someone at lunch or someone today put it very well. Uh, Persian nationalism is a little bit like Texas nationalism. It's ferocious. And uh, when the Iranians feel that feel that they're cornered, that they, you know, their nationalism takes hold, and they do things that are in their own national interests, even when they don't like their rulers, that ha- happened particularly when Saddam Hussein invaded Iran, and a lot of people who were unhappy with the revolution in 1980 rallied around the regime because it was a nation at war.
0: Next year, the United States will have a new president, either Senator McCain or Senator Obama. Which one of those senators do you think is better suited to deal with the situations
2: in the Middle East?
0: Oh,
1: right. You think I'm going to answer that? <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think we know enough about their positions yet. It really, they've talked in terms of principles. They haven't spelled out specifics. I want to wait to see what the platforms say. Um, you know, they're clearly very different positions. And, uh, but I think that, that at the end of the day that neither one of them, when they actually get to the White House, would change as much as we might anticipate or stick to the positions. I think John McCain, for example, would feel great pressure from Congress to begin withdrawing from troop, uh, not all, not everyone but you know forces from Iraq, uh, I think Barack Obama probably would feel uh, seeing the realities on the ground that that pulling out precipitously or too quickly um, might create instability that he might not do as much as fast as one might anticipate. Um, you know institutions create shape the man far more than the man shapes the institutions. That's the reality of power. but Thanks for your question, but <laughs> I'm a journalist. And I can't weigh in. In today's Dallas Morning News, there was an article published about Iraq deciding it was, it was advocating using a major portion of its oil money to export its students for international uh, educational purposes. Great. Do you think there's any likelihood that could take place? Well, I would hope so. I mean, I think that the answers to terrorism really lie in uh, education. And creating a generation that is not scared of the West, is exposed to the outside world, that can lead its country because they know whether they have the skills in engineering or, or, or political science, uh, how to write a constitution, you know. Um, young law professors, that that's really where we find a lot of the answers, that we need to help create alternatives to the madrasas and the extremists. Because state educational institutions in so many of these countries are not used well. I also think in that vein that the United States would be far better served if we used our aid, often which goes to help security or military um, in allied countries such as Egypt. We would be better served using a lot of those resources um, to fund, you know, good education programs and uh, alternatives.
2: <laughs> what's going to stop Iran from completing a nuclear weapon, uh, and what effect will that have on the hegemony in the Persian Gulf, and what will that effect be on the United States?
1: Great questions. Um, you know, I think that Iran's, Iran has become the regional superpower, partly courtesy of the United States, because of our intervention in Iraq eliminated one of the forces that held Iran back. Um, And they now have allies that they can manipulate in Iraq, use against us. Same is true in Afghanistan. We're in a very, very awkward position in dealing with Iran, weaker than we have been at any time since our hostages were held by the young revolutionaries. on the nuclear issue, you know, this is a, a real conundrum. I want to make sure, and I keep asking officials, I want to make sure that we don't make the same mistake with Iran alleging it has a nuclear program in the same way we made the mistake with Iraq. I, as a journalist, have to ask those questions because we didn't ask enough in the run up to the Iraq war. Uh, Iran lied for 18 years about its uranium enrichment, something that it's legally allowed to do under the Non-Proliferation Treaty when used for peaceful nuclear energy, which it claims it is. But it lied for 18 years, and you have to ask, why do you lie? So that opens up a lot of questions. The CIA came out with a, an interesting national intelligence estimate last fall saying that Iran had stopped weaponizing or a weaponization program in 2003. There are three steps required to make a bomb. Weaponization and uranium enrichment are two of them. So you get these conflicting images of, well, it stopped its weaponization program, but it's still enriching uranium, which it claims is just for peaceful nuclear energy. I suspect Iran would like to have the capability because five of the eight nuclear powers are either on its borders or close by. It feels threatened as an Indo-European society surrounded by ethnically diverse groups, Arabs on one border, you know, um, Asians on others. Uh, No one came to Iran's aid during the bloodiest modern Middle East conflict when Iraq invaded and used weapons of mass destruction, including chemical weapons. Um, So I think we may have gotten beyond the point of being able to contain Iran's capability. That's the sad truth if they are indeed developing a nuclear program, um, I'd like to think there was something we can do. I don't think military solutions, that I don't think there are any military solutions. The real danger is that we would unleash that nationalism in a way that rallied around the regime in the one country where the majority of people actually do want change and like Americans, which is very unusual in the Middle East. They, you know, every poll that's been taken in that country, many of them by outside groups, have shown that they like American values. They don't particularly like U.S. policy. That they like Americans. Last time I was in Tehran, I was telling a group today, um, or one of the, one of their last, last couple of trips, I remember the twin bill at one of the downtown cinemas was Fahrenheit 9-11 and Kill Bill, you know, um, that... Uh, The one of the young women I saw, her version of Islamic dress was a baggy black um, uh, sweatshirt and long black skirt. And across the sweatshirt it said, Planet Hollywood, Las Vegas. You know, that we have these stereotypes of what's happening inside Iran that date all the way back to 1979. And a lot's happened since then. They've even opened a branch of Victoria's Secret.
0: Um, what progress has been made recently in changing the school systems in the Middle East away from madrasahs and into secular schools?
1: Not enough. Uh, governments, you know, as I said, the state state schools in virtually every country are pretty bad. Uh, people don't have school fees often even to go to send their kids even to, to uh, state schools. Uh, it's one of the real challenges in the Middle East. Now, or Pakistan, or you know, a lot of Islamic countries. It's not limited to um, uh, the, the, just the Middle East. And the reality, though, is the United States doesn't have the kinds of funds it required to buy textbooks, nor should that be the role we play. Um, but I think the idea of the Iraqis using their resources to um, send students there, or using more of our resources to pay for scholarships for kids to come, so that they do get an exposure to the outside world. Um, that's where the key is. And that's where you know, I'm a great believer that educational reform is just so much a solution. I'll also say that we need educational reform in the United States in teaching us about the Islamic world. We are all so afraid of anything that says islam on it and it's a real tragedy islam is now the largest religion in the world the vatican said two weeks ago or two months ago um, it is the fastest growing religion in this country the vast majority of muslims who come to this country are very proud to be americans they've come here for a reason not not to attack but i have a friend who is um... Uh, um, a Muslim, and uh, did his PhD in the United States, has a green card, loves this country, doesn't want to go home, and yet he refuses now to fly from East Coast to West Coast because he says when he walks down the aisle to go to the bathroom, people look at him with such suspicion that he feels terrible. And that shouldn't be happening in this country. So when we think about, oh yeah, 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 they've got to change their attitudes. Well, so do we. And, you know, I grew up in a society I was born into a, a country that was predominantly WASP, white, Anglo-Saxon-Protestant. In my lifetime, we've become a country that has embraced our judeo christian values and we've begun to guarantee rights for our minorities. We haven't gone far enough for women um, but we're getting there. And Uh, but our next great challenge is understanding our own Muslim identity and not being afraid of it.
0: One of the questions I also wanted to ask you, and it follows the conversation we had this morning, about the changes we're seeing in journalism, and how do you, will there be Robin Wrights covering the Middle East in Uh, a decade?
1: uh. Uh, Well, there'll be Robin Wrights covering the Middle East uh, in a decade because I'm not going to give it up. Um, (laughs) Whether they want it, me to or not. Um, I'm leaving the Washington Post at the end of June. I've I've decided to take the buyout, as over 100 of my colleagues have, Uh, 111 at at Newsweek, 100 uh, at the New York Times. Um, uh, I think it's the San Francisco Chronicle that basically dismissed about a quarter of its staff. Uh, Our business is changing dramatically. um, And you know, even my 91-year-old mother read the New York Times and the Washington Post on the web. And newspapers can't survive that way anymore. Um, I'm going off to write another book and a long-term project. Uh, write, you know, for major mag- magazines as I've done in the past. I've also gotten to that point in my life. I want. I've started thinking about the body of work I want to leave behind, and that's that's more enduring in books and magazine pieces. But journalism is changing a lot, and. Um, uh, one of the articles I saw today suggest uh, one of the Newsweek top uh, uh, correspondents at Newsweek predicted that the magazine wouldn't exist in five years. I think we will find, you know, there are lots of ideas about newspapers becoming 501Cs, basically nonprofits, um, because they can't they can't sustain themselves through ads anymore.
2: The Middle East and oil. You really haven't talked about what oil has to do with the Middle East. So Great question. And, and us. Yeah. But,
1: great question to end with. Um, oh, good. Um, uh, no, no, it's a great question. and I think oil is the enemy of democracy. It's the it's the biggest obstacle. And the irony is, when we ask what we can do about about it, you know, we have a lot to do with our. Um, our own self-indulgence and our own dependence on, on oil, our refusal to, to explore alternative energy, and I'm not talking about it, you know dwelling, uh, drilling in Alaska, um, is really go- going to hurt us, I think, long-term. And uh, it's very short-sighted. It will make us increasingly dependent on some of the most autocratic regimes in the world, um, places like Saudi Arabia, Uh, This is, you know, with the demise of the Taliban, the country that has the worst human rights record in the world, and is terrible. Women can't drive. When I go to Saudi Arabia, I have to sit in the back seat. I can't sit in the front seat of a car. Um, That's astounding. So I'm a great believer that, just like I said, education is one of the solutions. So is alternative energy.
2: (laughs) Uh, hi, nice presentation. Uh, I had, I don't know if it's a question or a statement, but I was taking in a lot of the information. I think he led into uh, what I was thinking that, you know, a lot of times we get caught up in this religious goose chase as if it's the religion, somebody reads a book and wants to blow something up. My question is, why would somebody thousands and thousands of miles away have the motivation from reading a book to come across the water and do those types of things? That's my question uh, when I think about it. The other thing is I think that in a snapshot, you know, trying to cover the Middle East tonight without going back to 30, 40, 50, 60 years of history that our country has had supporting dictators all over this planet uh, and, and, and helping to uh, the oppression of people throughout the, the world has led to a lot of, remember the first terrorists, um, if you think back in the 70s, this guy in Argentina and, and South America, there was a lot of that type of stuff going mm-hmm. on. Um, and, uh, and some of the uh, Israeli leaders, Yitzhak Rabin, Menachem Begin, Moshe Dayan, et cetera, all members of the Stern gang, and Haganah, uh, blew up the Lockerbie in Scotland uh, and and what, because of that issue. They didn't blow Stern gang well, didn't blow yeah. up Lockerbie. Who that, blew up the, Lockerbie? The Libyans. Oh, my bad, then. Excuse me. But it's the same. What I'm saying is, that I think the underpinnings of, of terrorism or extremism, et cetera, have more to do with oppression than it does with even the social conditions. I know that plays into it. But I'm talking about these extremists, uh, and we supported a lot of these guys. Remember, we went in bed with, uh, with uh, Saddam Hussein 30 years ago, and we knew he was bad then, and we still supported him. And now that it's coming to fruition, we yeah. act like we don't know what's happening.
1: Um, let me just say one thing about uh, your first comment on religion, and, you know, this is where we're a little short-sighted. Um, if you look at change throughout the world, even in recent terms, uh, religion is a f- often a function of political transition, because people don't have other means. When you look at what, I lived in South Africa for seven, or in Africa for seven years, and was in Soweto the day it blew up, in and 1976, and was imprisoned. Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of Cape Town, became the leading anti-apartheid activist and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. The Dalai Lama is the chief opponent of Chinese repression in Tibet today. Again, the, the, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Jewish refuseniks in the Soviet Union. Liberation theology in Latin America. Um, uh, base communities in Eastern Europe and challenging uh, communist rule. That um, religion is often the idiom of opposition when there's no alternative because it offers values by which to determine justice and a means of mobilizing opposition when everything else is outlawed. Benjamin Franklin said, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. It's not alien to our own history as well. So we, we tend to think the Islamic world is, you know, ugh. It's they're, you know, they're different when, in fact, they're following a pattern that's happened elsewhere. Now, the use of violence uh, by a, a tiny percentage, but disproportionately powerful percentage of people is deeply disturbing. What their primary goal is, including Osama bin Laden, is to change their own autocratic regimes. And they lash out at the United States because we are seen as the the props who keep a lot of these regimes in power, because we buy their oil or uh, because we're their political allies. So it becomes a cycle that's very, very hard to break. Um, that's not to condone what's happening, but it is to understand why people turn to religion, because many of our allies have exiled, imprisoned, or executed the liberals, the Democrats, the leftists, the nationalists, who would normally provide the types of political opposition we'd like to see, but because they're not there, people turn to Islam. And this is where um, uh, we need to at least understand why this has happened, uh, even as we condemn it. I really thank all of you for coming tonight, and thank you.
0: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.